What's going on, sinners and choosers? Welcome to Choose Your Own Religion. My name is Joe. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. This is the show where usually it's me and a comedian talking about whatever religious stuff we had growing up, and uh, then we make up a new religion every week. Well, this week we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, That song you heard in the intro is a song called Shadows, which is one of my all-time favorite songs by one of the all-time coolest people I've ever had to know at so many different points in my life. Today's guest, David Lamont, who I am uh, very honored to have. Uh, this one, this one is a really cool personal thing. I mean, when I when I came up with the idea of doing a, a podcast about my own religious, spiritual, quote unquote, journey, even though I hate that word, it's uh, it's a it's a useful word we go to. Uh, David was one of the dream guests I had when I when I first thought of it because he's somebody that is so entwined with my own Presbyterian life. And uh, has lived such an interesting and colorful life. And uh, even when I went away from the Presbyterian Church and went away from all my my friends at Montree Conference Center, where where I worked at, which is basically Presbyterian Mecca, and I and I desperately want to connect back to those people, but in an honest way, in an authentic way. And I've had people on the show before, like uh, Reverend Howard Dudley, who's a Presbyterian minister on the show before, and that was a great episode for that too. And I, I love talking to Presbyterians, and I hope to talk to more going forward. And uh, today was just a really, it's a, it's a special, special ass episode for me. I've had a very personal relationship to his music. Um, I mean, this is a guy, and we talk about a lot of this stuff in the episode, but uh, this is somebody that I've known basically since I was a kid. We grew up in the same area in North Carolina. We had, we're part of some, the same Presbyterian ties. And we also did a little bit of our own thing with our own religious stuff. And uh, David is one of the best all-time energies you'll ever you'll ever <laughs> share with somebody. Just a just a really cool guy, and he's a really interesting guy too, as you'll hear. And I'm not I'm not going to talk about everything we talk about, but after doing thousands of shows as a musician, he decided to go into peacemaking as a deliberate field. And now he's a he's a speaker. Uh, he, he runs a nonprofit called Peg Partners, which helps Guatemalan schools. He's got all kinds of great stuff going on. You can we'll t- We're going to talk about pretty much all of it on this show. And uh, you can also find out more about him at davidlamott.com. He also has a new album out called The Other Way Around, which I've listened to. I love it. I know you guys are going to love it too. Anyway, I'm, I'm blabbing a lot. By the time you listen to this, we'll have had the first live Choose Your Own Religion out here in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm recording this before. Uh, it happens, but I'm sure it's, it's going to be great or a total abomination that I'll never want to revisit. But I have a good feeling about it. There's going to be more out here if you live in Los Angeles. We're going to eventually make it a monthly thing. And uh, if you want to find out more on any of this show, you can go to chooseyourownreligion.com. I'm also blogging on there. I'm going to a different religious place every week and uh, writing about it in my own life. It's called This Week in Spiritual Narcissism, which you can check out if you want. And uh, if you like this show, you can subscribe on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you really want to leave a rating or a review about it or about if there's any particular guests that you really loved, that's really cool. That really helps a lot. If not, if you don't want to do any of that and you just want to listen today, that's cool too. Thank you guys so much for listening. So please, because there's no time like the present, there's no present like time, get your mind into the present here with David Lamott. Allow the soothing music and uplifting affirmations to center your heart and mind in an awareness of God's love. Wake up, my dear sinners. Wake up from your deep rest. Won't you say your prayers? Know that you are blessed. I love you. But Jesus loves you the best And I hope that you choose Your own religion Well, nice to see you, man. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, for coming on. This is... Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and get started, if that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's a real honor and a privilege to have you on. It's, uh, it's, also, it's a strange moment for me. Um, I feel like I'm starting to cultivate these types of quasi one-sided relationships with like fans of my podcast. And I feel like I have that with you a little bit because I know your work I've known and I've known your work for so much of my life. Um, 
and you you don't know that much about me, but uh, yeah, it's a fascinating thing. I, I, there was this interview with uh, Bruce Springsteen recently where he was talking about uh, he's been on a book tour. He put out a book and he's been hitting bookstores and signing books for people, you know. And yeah. he said that he estimated that he had signed some tens of thousands of these things. And and he said, you know, I I consider this um, an opportunity to have a ten second conversation about the relationship we've been having oh cool for for decades yeah and that was such an honoring way to say you know this is a real relationship like you know it it's real yeah um, but i haven't gotten to hear your part of it much <laughs> you know like <laughs> yeah so yeah it's fascinating how that works well, um well and- like yeah well, like i was telling you um when i was uh, reaching out to you i i remember my first memory of you is that uh at Camp Greer in Old Fort. Do you remember Camp Greer? Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. don't know if it's still around or not. but um, It's still there, actually. They're doing great things these days. Yeah. Yeah. And you must have been really in the, the early days of your career back then um, and probably yeah. doing the road all the time and and all yep. of that. Yeah. What was, uh, what was life on the road like? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It shifted for me a lot over the years. I still spend a lot of time on the road, but I do it really differently from how I used to. Um, so I used to string together tours in the classic sort of troubadour. You know, I mean, I had a Chevy van, the whole stereotype. I was uh-huh. out there <laughs> doing the thing with the long hair and and, and all of it. And um, I, I was on the road for a lot of years like that, sort of stringing dates together and driving around the country. And um I'm about as suited for that life as anybody could possibly be. (laughs) It would drive most people crazy. Yeah. But I have a lot of routine for, I have, excuse me, I have a lot of need for adventure and not much need for routine. Mm. Most people have a fair amount of need for routine. Yeah. And and a little bit less for adventure. Um, I like things to keep switching up every day. Mm -hmm. And, And life on the road, you never eat at the same time every day. You never go to bed or wake up at the same time every day. Right. And in some ways it was just an extraordinary luxury. I think one of the greatest luxuries of those first few decades of my adulthood, first couple of decades, um, was that I didn't have an alarm clock. Ooh. Yeah. Cause you're just, your gigs not till what, like 7 PM or something usually. And you wake up when you're done sleeping. (laughs) Oh, that's, that is amazing, man. People ought to do that. (laughs) <laughs> like it would be a different world if we could construct a way that people sleep until they're done sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, Jacques Cousteau actually uh, years ago did an interview before he died that they asked him about the secret to his longevity and health, and he said, "He said I have no routine. You know, I eat when I'm hungry. I sleep when I'm tired, and huh. I got to live pretty much like that for a lot of years, <clears throat> and that was a joy. And it, and it's interesting, you know, coming back to the the nature of the relationship question that you started out with. Yeah. Yeah. The time around concerts is intensely interactive. Mm. The time on stage, the time before the show, the time after the show, especially for me, Mm. I I love to hang out for hours after a show and talk to the few people who want to stay that late Mm -hmm. because they really want to be there and it matters to them, you know? And so we used to call it the third set. You know, I would play my two sets, do a little encore and the show would be over and then I'd sign CDs and stuff and hang out for half hour, 45 minutes. And then there would be five people left and I would get my (laughs) guitar back out and sit down again for an hour and play whatever obscure songs people could think up. And, you know, and we'd talk and I'd get to listen to them and not just have it be a monologue. And, um, and, and so that time was so intensely interactive. And then I would have 10 hours to drive the next day by myself. And Mm. that introvert time gave me a reset, gave me time to process the interactions from the time before the night before and, and, and to, uh, kind of get ready for the next thing. And by the time I hit the next town, I was ready to see people again after 10 hours (laughs) in the band by myself. And so, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a good life and, and this is a good life too, but now I have a kid and a wife. And so I mostly fly out on weekends and do Mm -hmm. something and fly back. And I'm, the the downside of that is that I only get to do shows that can afford to buy me plane tickets and pay me enough to make it make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the shows that don't pay that much, but balancing the commitments to my family with commitments to folks who are listening to what I do um, is is trickier now than when I was just 
when the only thing in my life was was the music. Sure. Was and was that a big p- part of your transition? And I was I think I was at your last concert or one of the last ones you did at Montreat back in 08. Dude, this is what's weird for me is we have a lot of these weird coincidental things uh, you and I and our like our life story between uh or this connection to Montreat and Black Mountain and specifically the AV crew at Montreat yeah, that I worked right. on and um <laughs> Awesome. And all that. Also, I I, I didn't want to say this too off uh, too early, but uh, this is also a weird thing with me. My freshman year, at, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, and um, I I had taken. I wasn't like that great of a singer. I wasn't a, a bad singer. I was an okay singer. Okay enough that I I felt compelled enough to audition for uh, the UNC Clef Hangers in a, an acapella group on campus. And I was just remembering this the other day that I actually used uh, "Stupid in Love" as my uh, as my audition <laughs> awesome. song. Uh, I hate to say it, I didn't get on on the cliffhangers, uh, but uh, I, I take full responsibility, Joe. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I will say that did practicing that song for my then uh, budding relationship with my first real girlfriend at the time that that got her to sort of uh, I got the hooks in her good so thank you for that <laughs> you're partially responsible for that too oh, okay all right well then I'll since I took the blame I'll take the credit awesome. <laughs> um, but what I was going to ask you so I remember back in it was 08 I believe when you had um, you were kind of winding down your music career uh, at least that that phase of it yeah, um, right and uh, it was very it felt like a chapter in a, in my life and a lot of people's lives is sort of ending. I'm sure, obviously, for you the most. But um, was that was that was the lifestyle aspect of it as a, a big part that informed that career change, or were there other things that had kind of gone on? Because you're you're going from being a road dog, this total musician, like totally totally immersed in that, to wanting to take on what all your other great projects are doing. Yeah, so it was in some ways a really big transition. In other ways, um, in some ways, not as big as it seemed because you know I was still doing stuff that mattered to me. But um, but yeah, I mean, no way around the fact that it was a massive transition in my <laughs> life to um, to hang up the microphone and move to Australia and do this master's degree. Not to mention have a kid right at the same time. Uh, Mason was 10 weeks old when we moved to Australia. So that was drastic. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, it, it was, um, it was a massive transition. It was a huge risk. And, um, and it was a stepping deeper into things that I'd been singing about all this time. Right. You know, um, I had been singing songs about peace issues and about how we can do a better job of, of being in relationship with each other and also about being fully alive and taking chances and being willing to trade it in and, and try something new. And here I had a chance to do all of that in one swell foop, you know, Mm. and I had no idea whether it was, uh, the end of my music career or I was hitting the pause button. I didn't know. I didn't know if it was pause or stop. Yeah. And um so I I felt a need to say some goodbyes and um it was really poignant. It was really hard. It's been such a beautiful part of my life getting to connect to people with uh with music through music. And so uh laying that down was was really poignant for me. But mm-hmm. I don't regret it. It felt like the right decision then and it still feels like it was the right decision. Yeah, did it I mean did it feel like you were sort of betraying your musicianship a little bit or something um i don't think it ever felt that way uh i wasn't so i wasn't going away from anything i was going towards something yeah okay yeah yeah and so that that's a really different orientation basically what happened was that um back in college i was really uh i went to james madison university and i was really deep deeply involved with uh community mediation with local level peacemaking and I was amazed at how well it works. You know, it's just really effective. It's a better way of doing conflict than the ways we mostly go to, which are violence or litigation. And litigation, it should be noted, is already alternative conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, from violence, which is our first go-to. <laughs> yeah. right? So, um, but, but getting from litigation then to mediation, the satisfaction rates of mediation are just through the roof better 
than satisfaction rates with litigation, even from people who won. Wow. While litigating, yeah. right? Um, we've ha we have better ways to do conflict than the ways that we mostly use, and they are teachable and learnable. And I was really excited about that. And I felt a deep kind of vocational pull to, to do that work out of college. But I had also started doing gigs in college, and that also really drew me. So we talked about working AV crew in Montreat. In the summer of 1990, I did my last summer on staff there in Montreat, this, which for those of you who are listening who have no idea what that is, <laughs> it's, a, it's a conference center in the mountains of western North Carolina. And they back in those days, they hired about 100 college students every summer. Now it's way over 150. I don't know how mm -hmm. many they hire now um, to help run this conference center for the summer. It's not exactly a camp. It's kind of deeper than that. But... Um, uh, Joe, you and I both worked on this uh, on the AV crew there, running all the tech stuff. Um, back when I worked on it, it was basically a couple of cups uh, with <laughs> string between them. But um, by the time you got there, they had better gear, I think. Uh -huh. At any rate, <laughs> but um, I spent that whole summer of 1990 trying to decide which of these things I needed to pursue because they're not compatible. The musician thing requires that you be on the road, and the community mediation thing requires that you be present in the community and consistently mm -hmm. available. And so I had to pick one or the other and I thought I would give music a shot. And actually I gave myself a two year deadline. Hmm. I said, I'll give myself two years to see if I can pull this off and do it for a living by living really modestly. Yeah. You know? yeah. I keep in a super low overhead. Can I make this my career? And I treated it like my day job. So every day I worked on music not just on writing and playing and stuff, but on booking and promotion, right? And I did that as my day job every day. And four months later, I quit my last side job. And that was the, uh, that was January of 91. And here we are. <laughs> so music worked, yeah, which nobody yeah. saw coming, right? <laughs> and so, um, so 18 years later, when I heard about this fellowship to go do a master's in peace work, that was just returning to my roots, right? That was just coming back to this other vocational pull. And 18 years in, my music career was working. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you do as a folk singer when it's working? <laughs> right? yeah. I, I think comfort is the enemy of art. Mm. You know, I was getting paid well. My calendar was full. I'd bought a little house and a little car and... You know, things were okay. And and I think you run the risk as an artist after years on the road of becoming an impersonation of yourself. Yeah, yeah. I was starting to get there. I was starting to feel stale and starting to feel, you know, I had little lines I could drop on stage and they would work and people would giggle and I could go mm -hmm. to the next song. And, and it it's hard not to go to that when you know it works and you're in the moment and you're surfing the, the dynamic of the evening. Um how do you get fresh? Mm, and mm. so, um, so I, I both had this restlessness as an artist and then this thing emerged that was, that spoke deeply to that, my other sense of vocation in my life. Yeah, so yeah. it was a no brainer. I just kind of, I had to go do that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. man, I'm going through like a, you just gave me a quarter life crisis on my own career, my relationship <laughs> to my own, my own day job. Uh, I'm bad for that. Oh, uh, it's a, it's uh it's okay. <laughs> um, you you talked about you mentioned living modestly on the road. Um, and I and I wanted to talk about this aspect of your life too because I couldn't find as much on that um about you. But I knew I know you. I guess you still are a Quaker, and at some point you became a Quaker. Um, and that was that living modestly related to that specifically. Yeah, it is very specifically related to that. I mean, I, I do believe in simplicity, although simplicity is uh, like like all these big words that we throw around when we're having any spiritual discussion. It goes deep. You know, we, there's a thin definition of the word simplicity and a thick <laughs> definition. Yeah. And and the thin definition is easy to dismiss, like the thin definitions of all these words are love, hope, discipline, whatever. You know, you can you can quickly dismiss the thin definition of any of those words. But when you start digging around into, okay, what is, how does this really intersect with my daily life? It gets really complex. And I mean, here, you and I are 
talking through Skype on our laptops and, or I'm on a laptop, you're on a real computer, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, that's not most people's picture of simplicity. Uh, but yeah, it, it opens into a really, really interesting conversation. What I can say about simplicity is that I have found that I feel most alive and most present to my own life in the stretches that were most materially simple. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, so I, I definitely cool. feel that, that too. And I mean, I, I get, so I go through these cycles where, I mean, I have like, you know, I, right now I'm sort of in the middle of one of like, uh, having all these to-do list apps because now you can like synchronize them between all your different things. And I have my to-do list easily grows just to obscene levels. Uh, But then eventually it hits a breaking point for me. And I'm like, I don't like, I don't need to do half of this stuff. It feels like I need to do it, but I don't actually need to do half of it. It's, it gets, I don't know. I guess it's a form of, of greed or ambition uh, that gets (laughs) caught up in that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and the the word need is a really interesting word too. While we're talking about yeah. definitions, right? Um, yeah, what do we need to do is a really interesting question. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask you too because you now correct me if I'm wrong. You're another coincidence of ours in our life is my dad is a Presbyterian minister, and I believe your your father yeah. is yeah. And so my, my father, my grandfather, and my sister actually. Wow, wow, that's the that's the ultimate trifecta there. <laughs> um, what uh, so what led you to go from this sort of uh, this Presbyterian route? And I, I mean, I have some experience in this in this area too. Um, what kind of led you to go from Presbyterian to uh, the Quakers, and why why Quakers? Yeah, so. People, when they ask me what my faith tradition is, or if I have one, I, I generally tell them I'm a Quakertarian. <laughs> um, so I, I wasn't, again, I wasn't going away from something as much as going towards something. So I wasn't really rejecting the Presbyterian thing as mm-hmm. much as I was just really resonating with Quaker thought and practice. And it moves me. It feels, it feels extremely authentic. And, um, it, it said that Quaker worship is not, or Quakerism is not a creed. It's not a set of beliefs. It's a method of worship, mm. right? So it's a way to be together. Um, and and a Quaker meeting consists mostly of silence. Yeah. And the idea being, okay, as a culture, we talk about God a lot. Some of us talk to God a fair amount. Very few of us spend much time listening. Mm. Yeah. Right. And if and if we believe in some, I mean, I'm using the word God, uh, intending the thick definition of that <laughs> really broad definition, including a lot of mystery, not the old white guy right. with the with the beard. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, so I think. In my own experience, I need a lot of silence in order to hear that still small voice, that little nudge, you know, the little tug. And um, being intentional about sitting in that silence together, waiting and listening, is really powerful for me. I I'm moved by it, and and it's a layering. You know, again, it's uh, I I I find that I need that. So a faith community for me, in order to be healthy, actually any community for me, in order to be healthy has to has to be a pretty decent balance of being nourished and being challenged. Mm. If I'm just being nourished and not being challenged, that gets old pretty quickly. It's like yeah. having dessert for dinner, right? <laughs> if I am if I am um only being challenged and not being nourished, I wear out pretty quickly too. I need I need that balance or some approximation thereof. And uh and I find that among the Quakers. I find that among a lot of Presbyterians too, but it's a different form. Sure. Yeah. I remember my, I think it was about a year or two ago, I went to my first Quaker meeting up here in uh, Pasadena, the Quaker Orange Grove friends meeting. And uh, that silence you're talking about, it is a very, it is a powerful silence. I mean, when you walk in in a room and there's only maybe 30, 40 people at this particular meeting, but 
I mean, also the simplicity. So, it, I mean, I don't know how, how a lot of other meeting houses look like, but it's essentially four quadrants of pews all facing each other. Uh, the, as looks like a colonial house, you know, it just, it's just pews and, uh, and, a chimney or not a chimney, a, uh, a fireplace. And that's, that's pretty much it. There's no, like, there's nothing on the walls or anything. And there's just people sitting in and with the silence. And then, um, also in the beautiful Quaker tradition, which I finally tied back to one of your songs was, uh, the idea that you offer things up to the light or, you know, you're yeah. holding each other in the light. Um, mm-hmm. What do you remember your first ever Quaker meeting? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I I should say you asked me a question I didn't entirely get around to answering. I rambled off there, but um, I, I first the first Quaker I ever met that I was aware of being a Quaker um, was a woman named Susie Fetter in Roanoke, Virginia, who was a friend of my mom's. And Susie has this um, crippling form of arthritis that has fused her spine. And so she can't turn her head. She has to turn her whole body. And she wears Canadian crutches to move around. And she's in constant pain. And she is the most joyful, energetic, bright, engaged, active person <laughs> you'd ever want to meet. She's just amazing. And, and a peace activist. And uh, just deeply engaged with the world around her. And completely undaunted by her physical challenges. And, and just constant pain. You know, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, and I was just so awed by Susie as a human being that I got curious about this thing that she claimed, you know, and I asked my mom about it and what, what is that? And, and she said, well, I think you should ask Susie. And uh, so I went and asked Susie and Susie was totally uncomfortable because she didn't want to feel like she was trying to recruit me away from my Presbyterian family (laughs) or whatever. But I, I started to read more about Quaker and you know how sometimes, um, something comes up on your radar and then it comes up in two more places immediately and different, you know, I, I was reading a book, a novel. Um, oh, what's the guy's name? Uh, the novel was, uh, it's Michener. I was reading a Michener novel called Chesapeake and there's a thread of a Quaker family in that novel. And I was learning about it on that side. And then I was getting more engaged in piecework and here the Quakers show up everywhere. And, <laughs> and so, um, the more I learned about it, the more I felt like, wow, this is what I've always believed, but I didn't know there was a group of people who saw the world this way. And so um, I got more and more interested. It took, took me a long time before I actually ever went to a Quaker meeting. But I did that um, after I graduated from college in Asheville. It was really funny. I went to this meeting and I was really, really loving it. I was really nourished. And, and um, I went back again. The second time I went... Um, there was this just classically Quaker man with a big bushy beard and a <laughs> hat, you know, the, the thing um, on the on the porch of the meeting house as I was leaving. And he was the designated greeter. He was thanking people for coming and whatever. And uh, he said, so how was your experience? Are you a guest with us? Right. Yeah. So I'm talking to him. It's very gruff, very New Englandy. And I, uh, he said, uh, so how was this for you? And I said, you know, honestly, um, the more I learn about this, the more I want to get involved. And he said, huh, well, I don't know about getting involved. You might want to do some reading. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, so this is a new church experience yeah. for me. Having grown up in the South, step up to any church on your way right. out and have the guy at the door say, and, and say to the person at the door, yeah, I'd like to get involved. They'd be like, hey, okay, awesome. Right. You can work with the youth you can be on this committee and you could do this. And Yeah, he's you know, a- he anti-evangelical. Like, yeah, he was like, you know, this is serious. Um, dig deep. And while I was at first kind of set back by that, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, awesome, you know, let's, yeah, this is real. This is serious. Let's take it seriously. Mm -hmm. And um, so I strangely ended up really appreciating that. That was my first Quaker meeting. Very cool. And that um, you mentioned uh, your friend Susie was being involved in peacemaking and it's, it's obvious um, how involved, or maybe it's not obvious to a lot of other people, but how, involved Quakers have been with the, the peacemaking process and then, um, and then your own path with that. And, um, and it's interesting. And you're just talking about it. I think a lot of people don't even think of it as like a deliberate process. I think when you hear peacemaking, you sort of think of like an amorphous sort of like mm-hmm. some, you know, something or other, um, 
the absence of something right conflict or war yeah right um something you definitely don't see on uh, youtube comments at the very least uh these days and i was i was curious because that's this is your primary sort of field now um or one of your primary fields Mm -hmm. what a what is would you say is the um is like the fundamental challenge in peacemaking is like is there something that you that there's some like aspect of uh any conflict that you identify as but that's like collected that's uh that's resonant in all the conflicts so is there something you identify as like the first thing that has to be worked on whenever you go into any process um yeah i think the very first thing that has to be worked on in any given peace process is the fact that we are terrible listeners mm. In mediation, they say that the uh, the opposite of listening is not um, ignoring. The opposite of listening is formulating a response. <laughs> Guilty as charged there. Right? I mean, yeah, sure. It, it's part of your gig. You, you have to have that skill set. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, to actually deeply listen to people with curiosity and with as little judgment as you can, you know, muster, um, I think that's a teachable skill. It's something that we can get better at with practice and we don't spend any time at all practicing that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we teach history as the history of, of various conflicts. We leave out all the part about the peacemaking. You know, we don't teach that we could teach conflict resolution in schools as a required course. And I don't know why we don't as a more required course than English, math, whatever. Can you imagine what the world would be like <laughs> yeah. if people had peacemaking skills that they had actually studied and learned and developed? Mm-hmm. Um, if everybody had that. Like in, like in South Korea, everybody has a black belt in Taekwondo. All the men do. It's part of your requirement as you, with your compulsory oh. military service, right? So there, there are no bar fights in South Korea. <laughs> everybody, everybody everywhere knows how to pull them right apart and, you know, wow. like to subdue people. It's like, there you go. Um, imagine <laughs> if we taught everybody conflict resolution skills. Yeah. Or just even meditation, I think about all the time. Amen. Yeah, that would be pretty powerful. That would be pretty powerful. Um, how often is, is like the peacemaking process about the specifics of the issue versus things like trust or lack thereof or tone or just building relationships that aren't there? Yeah. What do you think about that? Oh, I think it's, I I think that's, that's at least, well, as a, okay, as a total layman and a total unquantifiable answer that I'll quantify right now, I'd say it's at least 65% of it. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. And and my judgment uh, has no more merit than your own. I think uh, looking at that, I'm not pulling on any particular studies. I I would say that um, we're not good at empathy uh, in general, at, in getting past our own stuff and seeing something from somebody else's perspective, um, which doesn't mean agreeing. Listening is not agreeing, right? <laughs> but really yeah. understanding. One of the tools that that folks use in mediation that is extremely powerful, if you feel like you're getting to a place where people are unable to hear each other, then you require, you, you set up a situation methodically where one person listens to the other and is not allowed to speak until the, the first person says that they're done. And then the first, per, then the second person, the listener has to articulate back to that person, to their own satisfaction, what they said mm. or what they believe, right? What their position is. Mm-hmm. And man, when both parties, and then you flip it the other way, and when both parties have done that, just that you feel completely heard, man, you have come around the corner in terms of conflict resolution. It doesn't mean that it's all easy. You know, it, it, there are no magic pills, but it's uh, it's incredibly powerful just feeling heard. Yeah, it reminds me of something that. I believe I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about, or maybe somebody was describing something he was doing um, about uh, the opposite of uh, it's an actual debate technique uh, that the opposite of straw manning, creating a straw man argument is, I think it, I mean, it might be something called like iron manning or something, but the idea that you are, when you argue somebody in a debate, 
a very strong tactic to also make it more civil is to not just give a version of the other person's argument, but give the best version of the argument that you don't agree with. And to say, like, let me give you every benefit of a doubt. Let's say, you know, but like in a genuine way, not in like, Mm -hmm. like trying to construct it so that you can tear it down. Um, But to honor, yeah, you believe this because you care about your family and you want what's best for them. Right. And this is and you're concerned about these issues and that feels legitimate to you. And that's, you know, you're coming from a good place in this viewpoint. Um, It looks really different to me. Yeah. How often, because I see right now in my, uh, I don't know, in my, I don't know, my life or just what seems the most immediate conflict to me and here in America is the, what people talk about is like the two Americas. And I think, yeah. you know, liberal and conservative America, which, right. I mean, you're in a unique position where Asheville is sort of a, a hybrid between mm-hmm. those two Americas. One of the few places where you kind of have a, a decent mix of, you know, Asheville in particular being called sort of the Austin of North Carolina, this super, super liberal area. And then obviously Western North Carolina, home of NASCAR. And I mean, we know, Mm -hmm. we know every stereotype there. Um, I mean, so how did we, I'm okay. So I'm, I'm younger than you, but I feel like, and so some of this, it's hard to tell was just me as a kid being oblivious to adult, uh, ongoings, (laughs) But it feels like there is less of a common shared culture than ever. And that is a a big reason why we have such a stronger divide, because we don't have as much relationships with each other across these two Americas. We've sort of self-sorted and mm-hmm. uh, we kind of and so we only know our own tribe and our, our own tribe has maybe expanded to include our 50 percent. But that's it stops at that 50 percent. I mean, have have you seen that play out in your lifetime? Is that an accurate depiction? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's partly about the fact that we we spend less time physically present with each other in conversation, and more time with our communications mediated by technology. And um, I'm not a luddite anti-technology mm-hmm. guy, but I think we've got to be really careful about how we use it and how we don't. And, and I, I think we are gradually realizing the importance of being physically present with each other and the difference between that and a Facebook conversation. <laughs> right. You know, it's, um, it's, it's a really different thing. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you saw that I hung this big banner on the front of my house um, on, on Christmas Eve. My, my son and I went and nailed a big three-foot-by-eight-foot banner to the front of my house Um, because I wanted to say this to my neighbors, to my physical neighbors and, you know, my geographical neighbors here in the (laughs) neighborhood. Um, and the, the banner says, you are our neighbors, no matter who you vote for, your skin color, your faith or who you love. We want to be here for you. That's what community means. Let's be neighbors. Yeah. And then I, I, People liked it, so I made a, a website that's, and I put the website at the bottom of the thing. It says www.letsbeneighbors.org, where people can download that art and print their own. And now these are hanging in California and Ohio and Florida and Texas and South Carolina and um, on houses and churches and various places. And and I think we've got to be proactive. Like the the solution to this is not don't be a jerk. Like it's got to be more than that. We got to be, you got to, I think we tend to overvalue resisting what we think is wrong and undervalue creating what we think is right. Mm. You know? Yeah. Uh, It's important to resist what's wrong as well, but I think we don't give nearly enough attention to saying, okay, so how do you want to do it? What does that really look like? What are the steps to take toward um, the world you want to see? you know? Yeah. And I, you know, it's, and maybe, I, I don't know how much of this is, um, you just made me think of it. Cause I, I've been trying to, I don't know, for whatever reason, I feel that, um, and I think a lot of it is honestly just my dad's impulse as a uh, Presbyterian minister in <coughs> rural North Carolina, um, wanting to not really ever wanting to inject specific politics into his, uh, into his sermons or anything like that. And the name of maintaining a community 
of both right and left people. Um, and I sensed that in myself too with my comedy and whatnot. But then out here in my sort of <laughs> comedic and Los Angeles uh, bubble is the, the word of the, of the year. Yeah. I, it's sometimes even the attitude, people will take the attitude of let's, <laughs> let's be neighbors and let's, let's build bridges as a betrayal to your own side. And, they, and now it seems yeah. like people are demonizing the middle on both sides. I feel yeah. like, and I, that's what has me really worried. Does that have you kind of worried? Yep. But, um, it, it does. Uh, but I think the only response to that is to fiercely advocate for compassion, you yeah. know, and, and the middle, let, let me clarify. Um, I'm not saying by let's be neighbors. I mean, the, the way we shrink that down is to say, uh, you know, you're pretending there isn't a problem. You know, you're minimizing the very real dangers. I'm not, um, I'm actually, I've been to jail a couple of times over those things. You know, I'm, I'm pretty hardcore about defending people who are being attacked, but, um, but that's not the same as demonizing people. Like the dehumanization is the problem. And if we dehumanize different people in order to defend people who are being dehumanized, that doesn't actually move us forward. You know, it, it's somehow we need to actively rehumanize each other. And I, I think anything that does that is a good move. Anything that dehumanizes whoever is not a good move. It's not helping us out in the long run. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, that's a commitment of nonviolence. That's a, that's a, uh, a statement of active nonviolent resistance that we've got to create what's right rather than just opposing what's wrong. And in opposing what's wrong, when we do that part, we need to not replicate the very thing that we're resisting. Yeah. It's, um, what is it that, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of just the, you know, loving the sin or love the sin or hate the sin, that type of thing. Yeah. Or I, I, I thought you were going to say, see me being a bad listener. Uh, I thought maybe <laughs> you were going to say what, you know, the 60s slogan, why do we kill people who kill people to show that killing people is wrong? Oh, wow. I haven't heard that before. No, that, that's a pretty good one. And you could easy, as easily say, why do we hate people who hate people to show that hating people is wrong? Right. The whole, you know? the whole paradox of being intolerant towards intolerance. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, to, to pivot a little bit to, uh, I wanted to talk about your Guatemala work as well. Yeah. Um, and I, your website says, uh, you'd been involved with the peg partners or that's your, that's your yeah. baby <laughs> since, uh, yeah. since 2004. Um, and I was one line about in the description of it, because I, I mean, I'll, I'll confess that I, from what I knew, it was essentially supporting Guatemala, Guatemalan schools, but that was about as far as my knowledge went. Sure. That's um, fair. There's but then, a lot of things to pay attention to. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, there's a, the description you have on there is it's a nonprofit organization that supports literacy, critical thought, and artistic expression in Guatemala. Sure. And I thought that was very... Those are, those are two very telling things that you picked out. Um, and I'm curious what led you to, and why those two? Why critical thought and artistic expression? Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, critical thought is kind of fundamental to all the changes that seem to be needed in Guatemala, that our, our Guatemalan friends tell us that, that are needed for their culture. Um, those are economic changes, social changes, political changes. You can't do any of that without literacy and critical thought. You know, um, you need to be able to consider what people are telling you. And education in Guatemala is, is shifting. It's changing. But until very recently and still in a lot of places, it's kind of what education was in the United States 150 years ago in terms of pedagogy. There are no books in the schools. There's a chalkboard or something to write on. And the, the teacher writes things on the board and the students copy them down. And the way that you get the right answer is to give the, give the teacher back what she gave you. And generally mm -hmm. it is women teaching. Um, not always, thankfully. <laughs> so uh, it, there really is no critical thought involved. I, there are kids that I know who within the last few weeks have been given homework from school in high school, copy down this article 
and bring it back. Wow. Like that's the homework, right? <laughs> so they're not teaching critical thought historically. And, and so the way you teach that is you start out with little kids and as you're reading them stories, you say, Hey, what would you do if you were this character and you came up to the blue door and the red door, you know, like, what would you do? And, and, um, and it's quite fascinating. When I first started going to Guatemala in 2004, I would, I had experiences where I was in relationship with the class. They were laughing and talking to me. We had, we'd broken the ice and things were clear and you're reading them a story and you ask them what their favorite character is. And they look at you blankly because nobody's ever asked them what their favorite character is. Wow. Like it. And so just starting there, you know, (laughs) and then, um, and then, uh, asking them more and more questions about the stories as you go on and the preliterate kids, you have them draw pictures to answer, answer these questions. You know, how did this person feel when this person, when this thing happened and you have them draw a picture. And and then as it as they get more literate, you can go deeper with the critical examination of stories and ask them to think deeply about things. And and it's really powerful watching kids' worlds open up, you know, as they engage with books. So that's kind of the critical critical thought piece. The artistic expression piece came as most everything we've done there has come. Because people there that we work with, our, our partners, you know, the organization's called PEG Partners, mm-hmm. our Guatemalan partners said, hey, we want to do this. And, and there, were, uh, there are now two music programs that we support. The first one started in 2007 in El Tejar, Guatemala, and uh, Leaf International, Lake Eden Arts Festival, and, um, and PEG, my organization, have partnered to create this music program and it's just amazing it's going so well i was there two weeks ago and they did a beautiful little concert for me and um the kids are just really talented and the teachers are extraordinary um it's a really strong program so this is what they were asking for and we helped them create it and we've now got kids like there's a kid named jose patsan who i met when he was 12 who was starting out in our music program in that first class in 2007 he went through the program for five years and then he got a full ride scholarship. And this is a kid who lives in the house with a dirt floor. You know, he got um, a full ride scholarship to the music conservatory in Guatemala city, went for two years, became a licensed music teacher. He didn't have the bus fare, So we helped out with the bus fare. He now is a licensed music teacher and is back teaching in our program. But not only that, he also um, taught uh, rather he played marimba Guatemalan marimba on my most recent album. Oh, cool. So, yeah, I mean, it's pretty neat. The stuff we've seen happen. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, um, curious with artistic expression too. Um, we talked a little bit about it earlier with, um, you know, comfort being the enemy of art. And I mean, what do you see as, and as an artist yourself, what, I mean, what do you see as the purpose? This is such an ephemeral question and a really maybe an unfair one. <laughs> but, Bring it up. Uh, like, what do you see as the purpose of art? Like, what it in our relationships to each other and, and the world? Yeah. Okay. So I used to say that I love music and I've kind of given most of my life to it because it connects people. And I've stopped saying that because I don't think it's true anymore. I've, I don't think music connects people. I think music reminds us of our connectedness, mm-hmm. right? I think we're already connected and you can define that spiritually however you want. Um, the, the metaphor in our tradition of our birth is children of God, right? right. We, are, we are part of the human family and, um, and we are connected. And the arts have the capacity to reveal that connectedness and that's holy, that's true, that's real, right? And people who are skeptical about the arts blow that off and say, yeah, sure, you went to your concert last night and you felt great and you saw a Dark Star Orchestra and they swept <laughs> you up in, in this thing and, and it was beautiful. And, um, and that was a great feeling. And then you went home and you went to sleep and you woke up the next morning and it had worn off mostly and you went back to your real life 
right. after that little vacation from reality, right? So those folks are arguing that that sense of isolation and loneliness, existential, you know, existence that, that we walk around with every day, um, that that part's real and the sense of connectedness is false. I would argue that it's just the opposite. Yeah. Right? Here's what I want to know. When I'm at a concert and somebody plays a song that is so tender and moving that it ends and nobody claps for like 10 seconds. Yeah. Have you had that experience? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So how do 800 people make a decision without discussing it to defy the cultural expectation that you clap after a good song and none of them break that silence because any one of them would have ruined that. <laughs> right? How do 800 people decide all together without talking about it, without even looking at each other? Yeah, no, don't clap here. Hmm. Right? Yeah. That's real. <laughs> That's that sense of connectedness is real. And I love the arts because they have the capacity to remind us of our connectedness. And that goes for a Van Gogh painting that speaks to the turmoil in your soul or, um, dark store orchestra yeah oh and that's um and i you're just reminding me of what um and sometimes i forget this of what originally drew me to comedy both as a you know as a teen and then what got me into wanting to pursue it was it wasn't i mean there's don't get me wrong there's a time i love some silly stuff just like everybody else and i i really do and i think there's a there's definitely um a purpose to being totally silly and irreverent but the stuff that I originally was really drawn in by was people being being just totally honest and totally relating their their personal experience and a way to in a way that you it creates and generates empathy that wasn't there before and reminds us of the connection and you it's impossible to hear some people talking and not see yourself in their shoes in a way that you could maybe intellectualize before that, like, oh, I knew there were people who went through, you know, eating disorders or went through this or et cetera. Um, but then when you actually hear somebody right in front of you talking about it in a, you know, in a, in a way and framing it in a way that creates joy, <laughs> it's, um, right. it's a very right. cool and powerful thing. It is. I think you're talking about the, the relationship between entertainment and art, right, which are both important but they're different things and sometimes they blur and you know something can be both certainly but the way i think about that is that entertainment takes us away from our lives and that's good we need to step away from time to time you know in moderation it's good yeah um uh art takes us back to our lives but mm. from a different angle yeah right and you're talking about the art in the entertainment of comedy yeah and you almost yeah. need the entertainment i think in a lot of ways, the brain sort of needs the entertaining things to, in order to entice it away from itself. Absolutely. Yeah. So that you can come back and look from another angle. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you don't have that, you're like, oh, great. Another <laughs> another point of view. It's not mine. Right. Um, right. And yeah. even uh, and I, there's also different, just speaking again to that connectivity, um, I think not only when I hear somebody else, somebody telling their, you know, their life story in a way that creates that kind of empathy but there's another almost more i don't know how to i guess it's still a version of empathy but when somebody you know as, as they talk as they say they um they speak about unknown knowns or known unknowns or something like yeah, somebody right. says something that you're like oh i felt like i've all i've observed that or i've believed that but i never knew how to express it or i never i didn't even know that i believed that or knew that um, and yeah. it, that's another way where I, again, it reminds us of that connectivity in such right. a vivid way. It's such a gift when somebody gives language to your thoughts and feelings Yeah, that, that you didn't have before. And that's, that's when songs start to matter, by the way, too, you know, <laughs> that songs don't matter. If, if I write a song about me and I sing it for folks and people hear it and it's a story about me, who cares, right? It only, it only actually takes on power when it relates to their experience. Yeah. That's what matters. Yeah. Saying that makes me be like, man, I got to throw out a lot of my material. <laughs> <laughs> well, but okay. So here's the, here's the back door on that though, because, um, it's, it doesn't mean that, uh, 
you have to have the same exact experience as someone else. If you tell a story that evokes the same emotions that they relate to, that counts. Right. right? So we read fantasy fiction, you know, it takes us elsewhere. And, and yet the experiences that people have, the emotional responses they have are quite human. We relate to that part. Um, I've never walked around on Mars, but I know what loneliness is. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, emotional relatability is something I've thought about a lot the past year too. I, I got, I mean, I feel like it was something I used to more naturally do. And then, uh, kind of, I went through a period in my twenties where I wanted to, as a mechanism of sort of controlling the chaos of, of life, I wanted to distance myself from my own emotions. And I mean, part of that was, I guess, a meta, like through some version of a meditation practice, but then some of it was just wanting to have a more zoomed out approach, but it kind of, I felt like I I was dehumanizing myself a little bit and I wanted as a classic problem. Honestly, watching the movie inside out really changed the game for me. What a great movie. Yeah. (laughs) What a, I mean, I, I bawled my eyes out in that movie because just the realization, because, because I mean, sadness is the classic one that we try to suppress um, as the, uh, maybe the ugliest emotion or the least comfortable to share. And that had been such a, dormantly powerful one for me that i hadn't let uh you know spoiler alert for the if you haven't seen the movie but i didn't i was never letting sadness drive there for a couple years right and i was like oh wow that's exactly what i needed to do um and just the it just is sometimes it's my it blows my mind again that like you know they say there's six basic emotions there's a million more complex ones but um that everybody really does share the emotions and right yeah we're all painting off that same palette emotionally and so if you can draw a picture for people that invites them into a space where they can connect to that emotion then you've done something you know you've you've broken down that illusion of separateness and and reconnected revealed that connectedness it's uh it's no small thing whether it's through comedy or a painting or a song yes Yes. And um, finally, we're about at the end of our, our time. I did want to ask you, since, especially since you brought up Dark Star Orchestra again, <laughs> uh, which is a, a Grateful Dead cover band that uh, I recently saw, as, as you know. Um, what, uh, and you told me you, you saw the original, the real deal Grateful Dead back in the day, probably in, I'm guessing, Jerry's last days, somewhere around there. I mean, what was that experience like as somebody who I'll never, I'll never get to you'd <laughs> see that yeah it was pretty awesome i think it was 89 some deadhead is like no man it was uh spring of you know whatever anyway um, <laughs> i think it was 89 i got to see some fairly famous shows in the annals of dead history um i there was a, a period of time when um uh what's the name of that little town in virginia uh hampton or was it Hampton? Yeah, it was the Hampton Coliseum. It was. Yeah. Um, so the town council of Hampton passed a resolution that the Grateful Dead were no longer allowed to play <laughs> in their town because um, they were bringing home, you know, all sorts of deplorables to town. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> they passed the resolution. And so everybody was really disappointed because the Hampton shows were always great, right? And, uh-huh. and so um, legendary people were really bummed. And, and, then as the dates grew, so, so those dates that had been announced were canceled off of the Dead's tour. And as the dates got closer, everybody noticed that they were still there, those holes. You know, they hadn't rebooked it in Roanoke or anything. You know, what's going on with that? And then people who went to pay attention popped over to the Hampton Coliseum website and noticed there were some empty dates on that weekend as well. And that seemed strange. And they matched right up. And, and so um, just a few weeks before the show's, it was announced that a band called the Warlocks was going to play at the Hampton Coliseum, yeah. which was the very first um, name of the Grateful Dead when they first got together. So, uh, <laughs> so the Warlocks played; the Grateful Dead didn't. Um, and I got to catch those shows. And How cool! The T-shirts were really fun. They said, "Warlocks, were they ever really here at all?" You know. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, I I caught them again um, with Bruce Hornsby uh, playing keys down in in uh, Raleigh. North Carolina. So yeah. that was, and that was a, a really fun one too. I learned recently that a dear friend of mine here in Black Mountain was also at that same show with me, mm-hmm. um, with Hornsby playing keys and, and, uh, 
I think he opened that set as well. But it was so hot that the fire department was really concerned about people passing out from heat stroke. Mm. So they came out and opened up the fire hydrants and just handed <laughs> all these hundreds of deadheads this huge fire hose. And people would kind of, there was this big mob moving toward the water and they were just pointing it up in the air and spraying everybody down. And folks were moving in and taking turns holding the fire hose and then they'd get oh, soaked wow. and head out. But man, oh, cool. it, was, it was pretty amazing. That is amazing, and I can vouch. I can vouch for you that I, I've heard about those uh, those warlock shows before. So, yep, yeah, that, I, it, I think I'm pretty sure it actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, David Lamont, thank you so much. Oh, I didn't even talk about your new album, but uh, I've listened to it. It's great. I'm a big fan of Drink Drink Deeply. It's like the the single off of that, I suppose. Thank you. Yeah, that was an amazing uh, song to put together. It's just incredible all the people we got on it. I, I don't know how many Grammy grammy winners are playing on that one song it's just <laughs> it's crazy it's great um so, where would uh where would you like people to go is uh, your website yeah the website's the best place to go davidlamott.com if you can spell lamott you're good to go um <laughs> uh, well this is this is a really really uh great honor and a privilege again as i said before this is um my I've, my life again with the one relationship at least my life has intertwined with yours at so many weird different points in my life from starting as a like a five or six year old all the way <laughs> to through every basically every part of my life from adolescence and college and and here we are now so um this was really cool thank you very cool joe i've really enjoyed the conversation thanks for the work you're doing and um i'll stay tuned and enjoy other conversations great thanks a lot take care bye-bye and that's the show. Once again, thank you so much to David for any of his amazing projects that he's working on. Go to davidlamont.com. For any of my stuff you want to check out, chooseyourownreligion.com. Love you guys very much. Jamaste.